Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host Akshay Taylor, and today we're kicking off a month of World War One era episodes. So, generally I'll try and focus on um, some of the less well-known events, so I won't go too much into stuff like Verdun, Passchendaele, the Somme, etc. Though they may be mentioned, that'll be mostly for later episodes. I think today what I'm going to try and do is just kind of do a quick summary of the war. Which, I don't think I've done a full war before, so this could be interesting. But either way, I thought I'd give it a shot and see how it goes. So each week this month, I'll do episodes generally on topics which fit between 1914 and 1918, within the boundaries of the war. Maybe some stuff that was affected by it and happened on the outskirts of it. But we'll kind of see how it goes, and hopefully it goes well. <laughs> Uh, on top of that, on the 11th of November, we have a, a special episode coming up with a bunch of podcasters having sent in a 5-15 to 15 minute segment on pretty much whatever they want that's related to the war. So some of them might be serious, some will be less so, a bunch of different genres. So we'll see how it goes. It seems to be shaping up pretty nicely though. But anyway, I think let's just get straight into the episode and get rolling. So, I'm going to cut the music, and I'll see you in a bit. And we are back. So, let's talk about the First World War. I think we're just going to try and kind of run through this bit by bit. It might not be a perfect narrative. I was trying to kind of put it all together and in a way that made sense. <laughs> so yeah, let's uh, go straight in. The First World War, it was a landmark in history which changed the world irreversibly. We still see the effects all over the world and even today. During the war, millions died to combat alone and more than 70 million military personnel were mobilised, including 60 million Europeans. Numbers can be a bit awkward to put down precisely, but any that I do put up will be the most likely that I've found. So it's estimated that the total number of military and civilian casualties in the First World War was about 40 million people, with about 9 million combatants and 7 million civilians dying as a direct result of the war. And on top of that, 
It's also considered to have contributed to a number of genocides, famines, disease outbreaks, etc. Like, for example, there was the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which broke out towards the end of the war, and that's said to have caused between 50 and 100 million deaths worldwide. But anyway, let's go to the start of the war. So, in Europe, there were two major alliances in place. The first being the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy, which got put together in 1882. Germany and Austria-Hungary were pretty closely allied for about three years already, while Italy joined this agreement after having their colonial desires in North Africa stopped by France. So each member promised mutual support in case they got attacked by any other great power, essentially a defensive treaty. But there was more to it than that. Shortly after renewing this alliance in June 1902, Italy secretly extended a similar guarantee to France, which agreed that neither Austria-Hungary nor Italy would change any status quo in the Balkans without previously consulting them. And essentially, they reached an understanding where both Italy and France would remain neutral in the event of an attack on the other. And as a result of this uh, defensive agreement, Italy could proclaim neutrality as it considered Austria-Hungary an aggressor. And the other great alliance was the Triple Entente, which kind of works as a counterweight to this alliance, and was formed of France, Russia, and Britain. And after their treaty with Germany was not renewed in 1890, the Russian leaders started growing a bit alarmed at their diplomatic isolation, and decided to join the Franco-Russian alliance in 1894. And meanwhile, Britain which pretty famously regarded France and Russia as two of its most dangerous rivals for a good proportion of history, decided to also start making agreements, especially under the growing threat of Germany, which was growing in power and also growing its battle fleet, which threatened British naval superiority. So in 1904, Britain and France signed agreements in the form of the Entente Cordiale, which was mainly to solve colonial disputes and also have this kind of cushion against Germany. However, unlike the Triple Alliance and the Franco-Russian Alliance, it wasn't an alliance of mutual defence, so Britain was essentially free to make its own foreign policy decisions when the war broke out. Meanwhile, in 1907, Britain and Russia signed the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907, which ended their rivalry in Central Asia, aka the Great Game. And with all these agreements in place, it completed the Triple Entente. And as the war widened, the Triple Entente would add Italy, Japan, and also the United States to form the Allied Powers, while the Ottoman Empire and Bulgaria joined Germany and Austria-Hungary to create the Central Powers. Now, on the 28th of June 1914, Gavrilo Princip, a Bosnian Serb who was a Yugoslav nationalist and member of a terrorist group called the Black Hand, assassinated the Austro-Hungarian heir, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. This led to something called the July Crisis, and on the 23rd of July, Austria-Hungary gave Serbia an ultimatum, following which all these alliances would pretty quickly, one after another, essentially activate, and all the major European powers and their colonial empires would be drawn in, and the conflict would spread across the world. And Virginia Postrel would um, say that European nations began World War I with a glamorous vision of war, only to be psychologically shattered by the realities of the trenches. The experience changed the way people referred to the glamour of battle. They treated it no longer as a positive quality, but as a dangerous illusion. And speaking of trenches, the Western Front in particular of World War I was famous for it. Essentially, as the range and rate of fire of 
small arms would increase. It was much more likely for anyone defending from a covered position, such as a trench, would most likely be able to kill multiple people before they closed on their position. And attacks on open ground became even more dangerous after the introduction of rapid-firing heavy artillery. And these increases in firepower would easily outstrip any ability of infantry or cavalry to cover the ground between lines. And it would take some time for mobile technology to catch up, with one of the key developments later in the war being the advent of tanks. So both sides would dig in and concentrate on breaking up enemy attacks and protecting their own troops by digging in and trying to survive the ensuing battle of attrition. And in 1914, the race to the sea would rapidly expand the use of trenches on the Western Front. Starting in September 1914 and ending in October of that year, the whole front of Belgium and France would solidify into lines of trenches, and these would last until the last weeks of the war, as battles that were typically mobile would no longer work in the face of modern warfare. So digging in and trying to avoid modern implements of war would become the standard. A frontal attack would generally cause crippling losses. So essentially what they tried, what people tried to do is outflank enemy trenches. And over the course of the Race of the Sea, all of these flanking moves and extended trenches would essentially build a pair of trench lines from the Swiss border in the north to the North Sea coast of Belgium. Of course, the Western Front wouldn't be the only place to use trenches, and it would occur in other fronts as well, but the Western Front was where it was most prevalent. And it would last until the German forces would launch their spring offensive on the 21st of March 1918, only to be countered by the Allied 100-day offensive. But while it was still active, frontal assaults, along with the casualties that came with them, became commonplace, as these continuous trench lines would have no open flanks, and the only way was forward. And Battles of attrition would take place with the casualties of the defenders generally matching the same of those, the attackers as, despite the defensive capabilities of the trenches, huge amounts of reserves would be expended in counterattacks, where they'd be exposed to the attackers' massed artillery and gunfire. A typical trench system would generally consist of a series of trench lines running parallel to each other, and generally being at least one mile in depth. Each trench would be dug in a type of zigzag so that an enemy standing at one end couldn't fire for more than a few yards down its length. As originally, trenches would be a lot more simplistic in straight lines and men pretty tightly packed, but of course a hit from artillery or explosives would make pretty short work of that. And each of the main lines of trenches would be connected to each other and the rear by a series of communications trenches, which were dug generally perpendicular to them where food, ammo, fresh troops, mail, and orders would be delivered. And the network of trenches would contain things like supply dumps, first aid stations, latrines, command posts, and kitchens. And probably most importantly, machine gun emplacements to defend against assaults, and dugouts to shelter against enemy bombardment. But of course, like I said earlier, the war had massive casualty rates. During the Battle of the Somme alone, over 3 million men fought, and over 1 million were killed or wounded. On the first day, Britain experienced their worst losses in the history of the British Army, of 57,470 casualties. It wouldn't be uncommon for hundreds to die to gain a metre of land. Another way to look at the Tolland countries is to look to the thankful villages where all soldiers were returned. In the UK, 53 have been identified, with none in Scotland or Ireland, while in France, 
Fiedil was the only village to take no losses. And as the war went on, we'd see the advent of tanks, air combat, chemical warfare, machine gun improvements, flamethrowers, large-scale artillery barrages, and more. War had changed from a terrifying concept into something much worse. The German chief of staff, Erich von Falkenhayn, planned a battle of annihilation at Verdun, an attempt not to take territory, but to draw in French forces and bleed France white. It would be the longest battle of the war, lasting for 303 days, where between 40 and 60 million artillery shells would be fired, with 1 million fired from 1,220 guns on the first barrage alone, and at its peak, over 40 shells per minute would fall. And these barrages could be heard, quite literally, from 240 kilometres away. Nine French towns were blown off the map entirely, with French casualties amounting to about 400,000, and... German ones accounting for about 350,000. Some 360,000 were killed. And to put that in context, the total British dead in World War II was just over 350,000. The battlefield wasn't even 10 square kilometres. Hans Otto Schetter, a German soldier, would describe combat, saying, The whole earth is ploughed by the exploding shells, and the holes are filled with water. And if you do not get killed by the shells, you may drown in the craters. Broken wagons and dead horses are moved to the sides of the road. Also, many dead soldiers lie there. Wounded soldiers who died in the ambulance have been unloaded and their eyes stare at you. Sometimes an arm or leg is missing. Everybody is rushing, running, trying to escape almost certain death in this hail of enemy shells. Today I have seen the real face of war. French Sergeant Paul de Brule would say that to die from a bullet seems nothing. Parts of our being remain intact. But to be dismembered, torn to pieces, reduced to pulp, this is a fear that the flesh cannot support, and which is fundamentally the great suffering of the bombardment. Of course, Europe wasn't the only place where the war occurred. In the Asian and Pacific theatres of the Great War, the majority of action took place via naval battles, and the Allies taking German colonial possessions in the Pacific Ocean and China, with the most significant action being the Siege of Tsingtao in what's now China. And though most uh, German and Austrian possessions in Asia and the Pacific fell without any bloodshed, naval warfare was still common, as all of the colonial powers had naval squadrons stationed in the Indian or Pacific Ocean. And these fleets would generally operate by supporting invasions of German-held territories by destroying the East Asia squadron of the Imperial German Navy. While in the African theatre of the war, multiple campaigns would occur. In North Africa, it would be instigated by the German Ottoman Empires. Local rebellions against European colonial rule would occur, and allied campaigns against the German colonies of Southwest Africa and German East Africa were fought, between the German Schutztruppe and local resistance movements and the forces of the British Empire, France, Italy, Belgium and Portugal. But war in Africa was different, as it didn't have the infrastructure that Europe had. You couldn't transport heavy machinery by road, and widespread trench warfare for this reason didn't occur very often. Battles would generally rely on mobility and skirmishes in all kinds of geographies, such as swamps, jungles, and more. Now generally, before this, most European warfare in Africa was generally against African societies in order to enslave people and take territory. And this sentiment kind of stuck, especially in the early parts of the war. The Berlin Conference of 1884 provided that European colonies in Africa should remain neutral if war broke out in Europe. 
1914, none of the European powers had plans to challenge their opponents for control of the overseas colonies. And when news broke of the war in Europe, there wasn't much enthusiasm for it in the African colonies. On the 22nd of August, the East African Standard published an editorial arguing that Europeans and Africa should not fight each other, but instead collaborate to maintain the repression of the indigenous population. War was against the interest of the white colonists because they were small in number, and many of the European conquests were recent, unstable, and operated through existing local structures of power. And on top of this, the organisation of African economic potential for European profit had only just begun. However, soon enough, fighting would occur. But it would, it would still be different. For example, a large amount of German troops was in East Africa, but it was still too small to fight an aggressive war. So the objective of the German forces in East Africa would be to divert Allied forces and supplies from Europe to Africa. Britain would suffer 11,189 dead troops. Out of 126,972 troops which were involved in the campaign, and by 1917, about 1 million Africans were conscripted as carriers, which depopulated many districts, and about 95,000 porters had died, including about 20% of the British carrier corps in East Africa. From what I can tell, on average, there were four African porters for each soldier of the East African front. These would be involved in carrying supplies, cooking, cleaning, essentially just being servants. And a British colonial office official wrote that the East African campaign had not become a scandal only because, to quote, the people who suffered the most were the carriers, and after all, who cares about native carriers? While in German colonies, there were no records of the number of people conscripted or casualties kept. Though a 1989 estimate said that 350,000 casualties and a death rate of 1 to 7 conscripted people. Carriers conscripted by the Germans were rarely paid and food and cattle were often stolen from civilians, which led to a famine caused by food shortages and poor rains in 1917. The famine would lead to another 300,000 civilian deaths in Rwanda, Urundi and German East Africa. In September of 1918, the Spanish flu would also reach sub-Saharan Africa, in British East Africa, 160,000 to 200,000 people died. In South Africa, there were 250 to 350,000 deaths. And in German East Africa, 10 to 20% of the population died of famine and disease. It's estimated that in Sub-Saharan Africa, between 1.5 million to 2 million people died in the epidemic. When it came to India, Germany would attempt to use Indian nationalism and pan-Islamism to its advantage by instigating uprisings and urging Afghanistan to join the war on the side of the central powers. But despite this, and against British fears, they would see a unexpected outpouring of loyalty towards Britain, with Indian political leaders from the Indian National Congress and other groups eager to support the British war effort, believing that the strong support for the war effort would further the cause of Indian home rule. Uh, at the beginning of the war, the Indian army actually outnumbered the British army, with about 1.3 million Indian soldiers and labourers serving in Europe, Africa and the Middle East, while the central government and princely states would send large supplies of food, money and ammunition. 140,000 men would serve on the Western Front, and nearly 700,000 in the Middle East. The Eastern Front, between the Russian Empire and Romania on one side, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, and the German Empire on the other side, would stretch from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south. It included most of Eastern Europe, and stretched deep into Central Europe as well. Russian casualties are pretty difficult to estimate, 
as available stats are pretty poor quality. It's quite hard to put a number to it. One estimate gave a total of 2,006,000 military dead, with 700,000 killed in action, 970,000 dying of wounds, 155,000 dying of disease, and 181,000 dying while being POWs, which proportionally is similar to that of the British Empire, with 5% of the male population between 15 and 49 being killed. And Cornish, the same guy that gave the estimate for the military dead, said that civilian casualties were five to 600,000 in the first two years, and then not kept, meaning that over one and a half million is not unlikely. When Russia withdrew from the war, there were two and a half million Russian prisoners of war in German and Austrian hands. Only the Austro-Hungarian army would come close with, with 2.2 million prisoners of war. And in comparison, Britain, France and Germany combined would have 1,880,000 prisoners of war lost. Naval warfare would also be quite common around Europe as well with the Allied powers having larger fleets and surrounding positions trying to blockade the Central Powers by sea, with the Central Powers attempting to break the blockade themselves or establish a blockade of the UK and France with submarines and raider boats. This will have a large effect on a lot of countries, particularly with Germany and Britain relying largely on imports. And the Germans found that their submarines weren't very good against warships that were on a guard, but were effective against merchant ships and would sink a large amount of goods and supplies. However, in the long run this would work against them as neutral countries would have their opinions swayed against the central powers, particularly with countries like the US and Brazil suffering casualties and losses to their trade. Eventually this would be a major cause of the US declaration of war on Germany, as in early 1917 Germany would declare unrestricted submarine warfare which meant attacks without warning against all ships in the war zone, including neutrals. The largest naval battle of the war would be the Battle of Jutland, and would be the only full-scale clash between battleships in the war. With 250 ships involved, about 10,000 casualties, and 175,000 tons sunk. So after the 1918 Spring Offensive by the Germans, the Allies would launch the Hundred Days Offensive, which would bring the end of the First World War as after the Battle of Amiens, the Allies would push the Central Powers back and the Germans would retreat back to the Hindenburg Line. And eventually, after a quick series of Allied victories, the German armies couldn't reply and this would accumulate with the armistice of the 11th of November 1918. After the war, there'd be a huge political, cultural, economic and social change across Europe, Asia, Africa and a lot of places across the world. Four empires would collapse, being Germany, Russia, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Old countries would be abolished, new ones would be formed and reformed, boundaries would be drawn, international organisations were established, and there was a big shake-up in ideologies as well. It would also result in the revolutions of 1917-1921, and though the armistice occurred on the 11th of November 1918, the peace treaty between Germany and the Allied forces would not be signed until the 28th of June 1919, exactly five years after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. And during the time in between, the Allies would maintain a naval blockade of Germany, which would have an even bigger demoralising effect. Like I said earlier, Germany was still dependent on imports, and it's estimated that a further quarter of a million died from disease or starvation in the eight-month period after the end of the conflict. And a study in 2014 from a data set based on the heights and weights of nearly 600,000 German schoolchildren 
between 1914 and 1924 indicated that it would be very common for children to suffer from severe malnutrition. The most important peace treaty at the end of the war would be the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the state of war between Germany and the Allied forces officially. And one of the most talked about and important clauses of the treaty would be for Germany to accept the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage during the war. Um, it's worth noting that other members of the Central Powers signed similar treaties. And this article would later be known as the War Guilt Clause, and would require Germany to disarm, make large territorial concessions, and pay reparations to certain countries that form the Entente or Allied Powers. And in 1921, the total cost of these reparations was assessed at 132 billion marks, which at the time was 6.6 .6 billion pounds, or 31.4 billion dollars, which nowadays is about 284 billion pounds, or 442 billion dollars. And essentially this resulted in a compromise where no one was really left content. Germany wasn't really able to pay this, like, it was an excessive amount in Germany, and Germany was neither pacified nor appeased, and it wasn't permanently weakened either. Uh, this would lead to more treaties which improved the relations between Germany and other European powers, and renegotiations of the reparation system, uh, etc. Eventually, even the indefinite postponement of reparations in 1932. But either way, Germany would be required to reduce the size of its army to 100,000, and destroy their tanks, air force, and U-boat fleets. Small amounts of territory would transfer to Denmark, Czechoslovakia, and Belgium, with a bigger portion being transferred to France, and the largest portion uh, becoming a part of a re-established Poland. Its overseas colonies were divided between allied countries, with the most notable being Britain and Africa. But in the end, it was lost territory for the newly independent Polish state, which included the German city of Danzig, and the separation of East Prussia from Germany, which caused the largest amount of domestic outrage. And this outrage would be famously fed upon by the Nazi party, as a lot of Germans would not accept the treaty as legitimate and would lend their political support to Adolf Hitler. And in the end, the war experience in the West is commonly assumed to have led to a collective national trauma for all of the participating countries. Like optimism from the early 1900s was gone, and those who fought became known as the Lost Generation as they never fully recovered. And for the next few years, most of Europe would mourn privately and publicly, with memorials being erected in thousands of villages and towns. Some people would be revolted by nationalism and what they believed it caused, uh, working towards more internationalist world organizations, such as the League of Nations. Pacifism became more popular, while others had the opposite reaction, thinking that only military strength could be relied on for protection. Disillusionment and cynicism was more pronounced, nihilism became more popular, many people believed that the war was the end of the world as they knew it, and they wouldn't be too far off. The world would not be the same afterwards. Capitalism and imperialism would collapse, communism and socialism movements would draw strength from it, particularly in areas which were most affected by the war, like Central Europe, Russia and France. And of the 60 million European military personnel that were mobilised, 8 million were killed, 7 million were permanently disabled, and 15 million were seriously injured. Germany would lose 15.1% of its active male population, Austria-Hungary would lose 17.1%, and France would lose 10.5%. A census in the UK in 1921 would find that there was a difference of 1.72 million between men and women after the war, finding 19.8 million women and 18 million men. Social disruption would be widespread in East Europe, 
with the Russian Revolution of 1917, followed up by the Russian Civil Wars and more than 2,000 persecution events in the former Russian Empire, largely being in Ukraine, where an estimated 60,000 to 200,000 civilian Jews were killed in the atrocities. Economic failures following the First World War and Russian Civil Wars would lead to the Russian Famine of 1921, where 5 to 10 million people died. And from 1918 to 1922, Russia had about 25 million infections and 3 million deaths from epidemic typhus. In 1922, there were between 4.5 million and 7 million homeless children in Russia. Historian Samuel Hines would say that a generation of innocent young men, their heads full of high abstractions like honour, glory and England, went off to war to make the world safe for democracy. They were slaughtered in stupid battles planned by stupid generals. Those who survived were shocked, disillusioned and embittered by their war experiences, and saw that their real enemies were not the Germans, but the old man at home who had lied to them. They had rejected the values of the society that had sent them to war, and in doing so, separated their own generation from the past and from their cultural inheritance. And yeah, that's all I have. So now that you've listened to my summary, remember that nothing in this war was simple. I, I haven't even scratched things like shell shock, life at home, war crimes, barbed wire, most battles, medical progress, improvised weapons, veteran life, supply logistics, prisoners of war, displaced people, and all sorts of other factors. Pretty much everyone will have a different view on it. There's too many factors, too much information, too much lost information, propaganda, personal opinions. For any one person to really process the war in, with complete understanding. Like In the end, it's all just people trying to make sense of the tragedy that was the Great War. And on that, we're going to cut to music and be back with an outro. And we are back. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed that. It's the first time I've covered something so extensive, so hopefully it came across well. There's also a bunch of really great summaries over a war. There's a bunch of documentaries, videos, channels, podcasts. There's just a lot of things on it. But yeah, so uh, before the next episode, so we should have um, a special coming out before the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day. Um, and there's a bunch of really awesome podcasters that have taken time to make content and throw it out and send it over to me to be stitched together. And I hope you'll really enjoy it when it comes out. Over the next few weeks, we'll cover various World War One era things in more depth rather than just an overview. A bit more typical as to the regular series with more interesting, less known events, hopefully. And yeah, so I think on that we can wrap up. So we have social media at facebook.com slash blood and rocks, Twitter and Instagram at the bloody rocks. You can email me at botrpodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. So on that, thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends and have a great week. I'll see you soon. <laughs>